The Zebra School proudly presents Zebra Ears, a podcast for new parents. It is our mission to bring you relevant health and educational content to help you navigate parenthood in a calm and confident way. We've gathered pediatric care specialists and other experts to talk about early childhood development and to offer advice to how you can help your child along this journey, especially in the critical first three years of life. So thanks for stopping by. We hope that you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the Zebra Ears podcast. Today, we're discussing language and learning development. Our guests are the founders of the Reading and Language Learning Center in Northern Virginia. We're speaking with Carla Askew and Susan Danker. Good afternoon and welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we're going to get started. And before we do, I would like to have you each tell me a little bit about yourself, your education, and how you came to be in this field. So um, Carla, let's start with you. Thank you. My name's Carla Askew, and um, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. My undergrad degree was in communication science and psychology. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do um, at one point, and I had the opportunity to actually observe a speech pathologist working within a hospital setting. Um, But she also, she not only saw um, adults, but she also saw children who came in just for language or articulation therapy. Um, So then I proceeded to um, apply to schools for the graduate programs in speech pathology. And I was accepted to the University of Pittsburgh and I continued um, my schooling there. And during that time period, we get the opportunity to do a lot of internships in different areas. Because as speech pathologists, we have to know um, what to do with adults, adults with head trauma, strokes, as well Mm -hmm. as what to do with children. So that's how I moved into this field. Okay, and Susan, how about you? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I always knew that I wanted to be in a care profession, and I initially went to Virginia Tech, and I did a degree in psychology there. And during my junior year at Virginia Tech, we were doing more classes, like Carla said, off campus and some within the clinics there, looking at early childhood language development um, and even with babies. And I was fascinated with how early on you could identify issues with children Um, language not developing properly, even from infancy. And then when I came home that summer, I was working as a lifeguard and the pool manager was studying speech pathology and she was telling me how she helped these children. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to do that. That is totally what I need to do. So I graduated Virginia Tech with a psychology degree. And then I went over to Radford and I did a a post-bac degree. So I just had to take some of the more um, medical science classes in the nursing field to get a second degree. And then they admitted me into the grad program there. So I've been looking and uh, the Reading and Language Learning Center covers a lot of area. I see that you do therapy services as well as intensive programs and camps, and you do training for therapists and educators. So. I'm wondering, um, in terms of how you meet clients, is this a situation where uh, doctors uh, send clients to you? Do you hear from educators or do parents come looking for you directly? 
It's a little bit of both. So um, a lot of our referrals come from psychologists. Um, and then we have those parents that have been struggling to find help for their child um, and have approached the school system, but they may not meet the requirements for the school system in order to get services. Um, so then they come to us. We do get some pediatricians that refer to us also once they um, once they see a client and notice that the language is not developing appropriately. Sometimes I'll just add to that as well. Um, daycare centers, the, um, the school coordinators, they often notice things or they see the classroom teacher says the students, you know, not talking yet. Um, you know, so they might, you know, talk to the parent about that as well. And other times like moms or dads just call us with concerns, um, just kind of wanting to run some things by us, knowing that we are the experts in that field um, from the speech and language pathology um, perspective to kind of look and see. And, you know, we, then we can do a screening and see if they're on task or sometimes it's just answering their questions over the phone um, that kind of leads them into, let's wait a few months, give it a little more time or we think probably it would be a good idea to come on in and get checked out. So uh, you also uh, talked about topics that were primarily important in the area of this development and learning. And one of them is speech sound development. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna start by asking you, what does early speech sound development look like? And what is the impact of delayed speech? So, um... When we're looking at our babies, those newborns, um, we're looking at their responses to our facial expressions. Um, are they cooing initially? So that ooh, ee, um, and also responding to your voice when you talk to them. Is that happening? So we need to look for those early on. And then by about six months, they start to babble. So that's when we hear the repetition of sounds and they're attempting to communicate with us. And so on the other side of that, when we're not seeing those responses, it can really affect the social interaction with parents. And it can also have an impact on their muscle tone, muscle development, if they're not mm -hmm. making those sounds. Oh, okay. And sometimes when the children are born, um, they might have spent time in the NICU as well. They might have been deprived oxygen for a little mm -hmm. bit of time. So all of those things can impact the child. Um, sometimes we refer to it like as a floppy baby, like mm -hmm. where there's not a lot of muscle tone. And if there's not a lot of gross muscle tone, um, oftentimes the fine motor movements and the oral movements are also impacted. Okay, so I'll start with you, Carla, on this question. When would the speech, the language pathologist, what is the earliest point of intervention and what does that intervention look like? So really it's from birth. So some children are seen early on in the hospital when they're having difficulty with feeding. Um, they may call in a speech pathologist to assist with that. At our clinic, we start as early as um, six months. So we don't see those birth you know, those early kiddos, um, but we start at six months and those are our late, you know, late developers, those kids that are um, not speaking at all. They're not making sounds. Those are the ones that we would see early on. 
Okay. Uh, so Susan, what are some mm-hmm. of those causes for the delayed speech? What are, what are we looking for? What exactly is it that's causing this? And what are parents, educators, or even for the youngest, what is, you know, what's grandma seeing when she visits baby for the first time in those first six months to a year? Yeah, in those first six months to the year, um, we might not see them responding to noise at all. Um, So there could be a piece of hearing loss happening or ear infections. Their ears could just be clogged. They could have allergies. So we would definitely want to have the hearing checked. Um, And ENTs are great. Um, They're able to do that. They can do it very effectively, even with the really young children. Um, In the nine-month age range, um, if they're not babbling by nine months, that's um, that's something that grandma might notice, like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, Bobby talked um, earlier than this. Um, and not having first words by at least 15 months. Um, and we want them then to at least be starting to consistently use words, too, and combining words by 24 months. And then um, also if they started talking and then there's a regression, that can be an issue as well. Um, One other thing that's important to remember, sometimes kids have excessive drooling. That Mm -hmm. can be um, a red flag for something motorically happening um, within their mouth. And they might be lacking that sensation to swallow when that excessive saliva is in there. They could also have trouble just with the sucking and swallowing and chewing of food. Some kids, um, even as young as two and three, when they're starting to do more of the solid foods, they avoid certain textures. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not just that they don't like them, that it's difficult to chew up and form, like form the little ball, basically the bolus that they would then push back um, to swallow. So they might gag on things like chicken. Sometimes that can happen or steak, like tougher meat to chew. Um, Another thing to look for is stuttering. Um, Sometimes all children go through a period of stuttering between the ages of two and five. So that's very normal. A lot of times parents contact us and they're really frightened because, oh my gosh, they're stuttering. I don't know. Did they bang their head or something? Why is this happening? And, um, you know, we just have to kind of talk through it and talk about family history and things like that and just reassure them that this is a very normal process for many children. They typically do go through this and then talk to them about those red flags and see if there's a family history, things like that. That would be um, more of an area to really investigate further, or should we just wait and monitor this a little longer? Okay. Uh, So I'm going to ask a layperson's question about Mm -hmm. the differences and diagnoses between stuttering apraxia, which is also another motor speech sound disorder, Mm -hmm. and how those two are related. Are they the same thing? Are they diagnosed at different ages? Carla? So um, stuttering and apraxia are very different. Mm -hmm. So stuttering is the repetition of sounds. So we may hear uh, 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 or stop, or we're getting these blocks within the words. And what I mean by that is like, there's a moment where they're not saying anything and the mouth might be open. So they're unable to keep their vocal folds folds moving to produce those sounds. And that is a neurological um, disorder. Stuttering can impact kids. As Susan said, we may see that early on 
and we need to address the history in that family to see if it's really stuttering or if this child, this preschooler is just having a language explosion mm -hmm. and they're having difficulty keeping up with their, their words and talking, you know, their thoughts aren't coming out as clear and quickly as they want them to be. And we might see that stuttering. Um, but stuttering really has to do with the speaking, the coordination between speaking and breathing, whereas apraxia is um, difficulty with producing the sounds. Okay. So it may occur the initial sound, the medial sound, the final sound. It's impacting their speech intelligibility. So what we understand from them. And okay. that is a motoric disability. So uh, we talk about treatment. And when parents come to you, what happens when this treatment is delayed? Let's say a child is presenting issues at a year, but we don't see treatment until, say, three years or maybe the school age. What are, what are the causes of, uh, I should say, what would be the impact of that? Yeah, the, there's a big, big impact. And it um, as the child gets older, if intervention doesn't take place, those gaps continue to widen. So then you start seeing where the parent, even if they're in that two, three, four-year-old range, um, they're not listening to me. They, I tell them to put their shoes on and they, they're still playing. Or I've asked them to put their toys away and, you know, get their backpack. Um, so they're not able to follow those directions, those even those two-step directions. Um, a lot of times the parents, you know, they might think, oh, maybe they have ADHD or something like that. But often it's a language piece. It's the understanding of the verbal directions mm -hmm. that becomes a mess. So then when they get into the classroom, you know, things are moving at even a quicker pace and there's more students. So those gaps keep widening and oftentimes the vocabulary is lacking too. So, you know, as the teacher is presenting more material, if the child doesn't understand or doesn't understand the vocabulary that's being used, they're falling further and further behind. Um, you start seeing it when they have to do written expression. Um, those gaps, again, get wider and wider. So following directions, um, being able to make associations, um, things that go together, categorizations, those become really difficult. And in the school age, they're expected to be able to do synonyms and antonyms and have multiple meanings for words. And if, again, if they don't have proper language therapy, those higher level areas of language um, are more impacted. And then that leads to later on not being able to make inferences and identify main ideas and like then creating a topic sentence of their own. So it's so important to fill those gaps in early on. So can we talk about the stages of therapy? If a parent comes to you with a one-year-old or say a three-year-old, what are the differences in the therapy and what would one expect um, would be the practices that you would be employing in helping that child? Yeah, sure. Um, so often when the, the student, the child is one year old and they're coming, it's a lot of parent coaching that we're doing at that time. So we might just be teaching the parent how to play and not to say that they don't know how to play with their child, but we're teaching them how to play in a therapeutic way. So mm -hmm. in order to follow the child's lead, 
Um, a lot of times parents want to do a lot of questioning. What's this? Tell me what this is. And they think that because their child can label things that, oh, look how smart they are. But the it, language is a lot more than just labeling um, objects and pictures. It's the usage. So we kind of, you know, have them watch us and then let them try and replicate it. And then we kind of critique them on, oh, that was really great. How about try this way to get this goal mastered? And the other reason for that is when the child is so young, we don't want it, the therapy just to occur in a vacuum, like in that physical room that we're in, or if mm -hmm. it's across a Zoom, we don't want it just to occur in that 30 to 50 minute session. We want it to happen at home and in other environments too. So it often takes that place of it's more um, parent coaching in the one-year-old range. And sometimes even in that three-year-old range, we're still having to do a big piece of that as well. Um, but it also becomes a little bit more child, again, following the child's lead, but it might be more drill work that we're doing and mm -hmm. a lot of play at the early ages. Um, to the point, sometimes, you know, the parents are like, this looks really like fun and like easy, but he's learning so much. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> it is, it's really fun. Um, and when the child is enjoying it, you know, it makes it even better. Okay. So Carla, did you have something that you um, wanted to add to that I'm sorry um sure now just what Susan to reiterate it has a lot it's it has to do a lot with the parent coaching piece when they're that young and how they can carry that over at home throughout the week even if it's just teaching them how to read a book appropriately with their child allowing their child to interact with them during that time even though they don't know how to read um, and asking questions throughout that process. Um, so I'll start with you again, Kyla, and ask you, are some of these issues having to do with delayed speech or language, are some of them hereditary? And how often do you see a situation where um, it may be hereditary and maybe you have a parent who was late to getting treatment? How does that impact the family? And yeah, uh, primarily, is that something that's more hereditary? It is. We're, we do see, so we do a case history when the families come in and a lot of these language disorders are hereditary. We see it throughout the family um, and the impact of mom not receiving services, um, but noting that her child needs some services. And a lot of adults say, wow, if I only had um, been identified and received services early, you know, I wouldn't have created all of these strategies to get by throughout life. Um, so we do see that it often, um, these disorders do run within families. And the earlier we see them, of course, the better for treatment. Um, and explaining the disorders to the parents is very important. And they may struggle a bit with understanding what's going on also, even once we've explained it, because they do have a language disorder also. Okay. So, uh, Susan, I'll ask you, um, I want to move into dyslexia. But sure. before we get there, I wanted to ask about dysgraphia. I'm unfamiliar with the term. It's a new term that I learned in doing research for this podcast. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about dysgraphia. And then let's also talk about dyslexia. Sure. Um, so dysgraphia is, um, it's basically, it's difficulty with 
writing. So this can be, there can be two pieces to this. And sometimes the word gets thrown around or used interchangeably. So it can be like the physical, actual handwriting, the inability to write um, as we would expect. Um, but it also can be the inability to organize their thoughts and get them on paper. So there's like, it's twofold. Um, we might see with children who have dysgraphia that they are writing even when they write their name. So if their name, let's just say was Mary, they might put a capital M, a lowercase a, a capital R, and a lowercase y okay. um, within there. So those are some things we might see. Um, very difficult time staying on the line. So the words tend to float on the paper. Um, you know, the typical line paper that they use in school. Mm -hmm. um, very messy. Very, very messy is what we see. How common is that? Um, it's pretty common. Yeah. So dyslexia affects one in five. Um, and oftentimes dyslexia and dysgraphia are comorbid, meaning that they mm -hmm. occur together. Okay. So um, I know that we, we throw the term of dyslexia around a lot. We hear it used a great deal. Could you give us a, dis, uh, a definition of what truly, what dyslexia truly is? Sure. So dyslexia is a language-based learning disability. It's biological in nature, meaning that it's, the impact is within the brain. And basically the brain of a dyslexic student does things differently and it does things, it takes longer and more steps to do the same process. So for something very simple for you and I to do, maybe we just have to spell um, the word go, we can quickly go into our memory and we know G-O and we can write that down really quickly. But for a student with dyslexia, they think about it, they have to match in their mind that G is the first sound, how to make the letter, get all the signal to the brain and write it down. Very, very difficult. And with, when um, a student has dyslexia, so like I said, multiple steps to get to the same result and taking longer. The other piece that research has found is that when they looked at like MRI imaging of the brains, that um, dyslexia brains on the right hemisphere is very lit up and on the left hemisphere, it is not. And okay. the issue there becomes that reading should take place in the left hemisphere and children with dyslexia are forcing it to the right hemisphere. And that's where it's only going to be stored long enough, like for that quick kind of like if you've crammed for a test, it's a memorization piece over there. And we don't want children memorizing words to read. We want them getting ingrained and staying longer so that they can pull it back when they need it. Okay. Uh, so Carla, I'll ask you what, um, what does treatment look like? How long is the typical treatment? If someone is dyslexic, is this a lifelong uh, check-in of treatments? Is it a, uh, a, a short period at the, uh, or I should say a, a year long period at the start and then, you know, you're learning to cope forever. How exactly does treatment for dyslexia work? So treatment with dyslexia, we always like to prepare our parents that this is a lifelong um, disorder. So your child is not going to grow out of it. It's not going to disappear it looks different at every age. Um, so the therapy process um, at the Reading and Language Learning Center, we are adamant about an intensive therapy early on. 
Um, and when I say intensive, we're seeing our kiddos five days a week for therapy initially until they get to about 60 hours. And once they get to that 60 hours, then we can determine um, how we can pull back on our therapy services, depending on where they are and how they're doing. Again, each child is different. Mm -hmm. So it really varies um, as far as needs. Before we even start the treatment process, we always do a full length, a full reading evaluation to determine what they need. Um, and that helps guide our therapy process. So once they finish that 60 hours, we're looking at, depending again on the child, whether or not they're seen once a week for the next school year, twice a week or three times a week. Um, but some of our kids, they're able to um, go after one year of therapy after 60 hours plus we're seeing them once a week or twice a week. And then they may come back to us. Okay. So in middle school, because they're struggling with written expression at that point. Um, so it, the, it really does change as you get older. Um, it is a big commitment in order to help these kiddos become successful academically. So what are the red flags and how early are we seeing them? So we're seeing these red flags as early as um, when they're starting to crawl, oh, okay. um, when they're thing. starting to hold books. So are they holding the books in the right direction? Are they turning the pages in the right direction? Of course, early on, we're not going to see that, but we're going to expect that to start to happen by at least um, a year. They should be holding the book in the correct direction and turning the page, the board books. We're also seeing that um, they, a lot of parents get really excited because they skip the crawling phase. Mm. And crawling is so important for brain development. Wow. Yes, to get both of those hemispheres working, both of those halves working. So that's a big indicator early on. Um, rhyming, if they're not you know, able to produce a rhyme, or identify rhyming words. You know, the Dr. Seuss books, we do those early on, hop mm -hmm. on pop. You know, <laughs> can they fill in the blank? Um, so we do see that also. Um, as they get a little older, we may see that they're having difficulty holding on to the days of the week, the months of the year. They are having trouble tying their shoes. Um, and also a dominant hand. So we all have a dominant hand, but these kiddos may mix dominance. Ah. So that is an early indicator and often missed um, red flag. Okay. So we'll go back now and look at early literacy milestones and the red flags that parents should be looking for. We talked about that a little bit, but um, what are we looking for in terms of uh, moving from infancy, the toddler stage, what are we looking for in preschool, kindergarten, and elementary school in terms of dealing with dyslexia and what someone might see if a child has not been diagnosed yet? Do you want me to go, Carla? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, in preschool, um, some of the red flags we might see are those kids that had the delayed speech. 
Mm. Um, so when we start talking to the parent or the teacher as the parent, you know, did they, you know, when did they put, start putting words together? You know, it might've been that they didn't start talking till three or four um, and had no intervention. The other thing is um, the students that have had articulation, you know, sounds um, in error or received some therapy for articulation at a younger age, um, that again, if, if that happened in the preschool age, it's a red flag for future, that those are tick sounds. And what we see as the kids get older, like when we see a writing sample or give a spelling test and we're like, oh, that's interesting. They're just throwing random letters in the words. And when we ask the parent, did they have early speech therapy? And they'd say, yeah, how did you know? And we're like, because I see it here in the patterns that they're using. Um, a lot of ear infections in the early age that can oh. impact later on the reading um, because we have to be able to hear those sounds and discriminate between the words and the sounds. So when children can't um, identify if two words sound the same, like just saying yes or no. So if I say, if even if I just said their name, like Bob, Bob, are those the same? Yep, great. Mm -hmm. Hot pot, yep, bed, chair. And if they tell me yes, you know, we're going to do a few more. We're going to make sure they understand that yes, no concept. Um, but sometimes they just can't hear the difference between the words. So that can be a um, big problem there. And then also the confusion of directional words. Um, so like left, right, mm -hmm. on top, under, those can be some red flags in the um, kindergarten or the preschool time frame. Okay, so... Um, we've covered a great deal uh, this morning, so I want to ask you for any additional information that you would like to provide. I'll start with you, Susan, and ask you, what's the additional information you would provide? Let's say you have a, a cold meeting with someone who has concerns. What would you tell them? What's the best advice that you could give? Yeah, I always think, um, you know, if moms call us, oftentimes both moms and dads call, but I always tell them after talking to them, go with your gut. If you feel something isn't right or it's different, there's really no risk in doing a screening and let's take a look. Because um, nine out of 10 times you're right on. There's some, there is something different there. And the earlier that you address it, the, the better it's going to be for the child's future. So that early intervention is so key and it makes a big difference. Oftentimes when we work with children who have autism, um, after working with them for a year, maybe a year and a half, others that don't know that the child has that diagnosis, it might not be as apparent to them, mm -hmm. where initially they might have been saying, hmm, something's different here. But the children look different then, you know, to the lay people. Like they don't seem to have as many um, behavioral things because now they have language okay. and it's just so important. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just even re giving parents resources for good toys to play with, um, I think that's important, too. And like Carla said, the books, the rhyming books are great, the Dr. Seuss books. Okay. So, Carla, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, what's the best advice that you would give? And also, I'll throw in, what would you say to the apprehensive parent who's a little more uh, afraid or frustrated by the fact that this might be an issue that's going to be long term? How do, you, um, how do we soothe that parent into seeking treatment and giving them the tools to not be overwhelmed by the issue at hand? Right. So um, 
I'm going to go off of what Susan said. Definitely, we always tell our parents, trust your gut. If you feel like something's wrong, then move forward with, you know, having your child evaluated. There's nothing wrong with that because early is key. Early intervention is key. Um, the other pieces, I encourage parents to, you know, do some research on on the subject. So give them giving them some resources um, or some websites that we feel provide good information for our parents um, so that they have a better understanding of what's going on. Um, we also encourage them to reach out if they want to talk to one of the parents that has already gone through the process. Um, it seems like, you know, other parents can really soothe, you know, their concerns of um, how long it's going to take. And it's just such a big commitment. And for us in soothing those parents is what we walk them through the process mm -hmm. and what that process is going to look like and approximately how long it's going to take. And we always try to reiterate, you know, every child is different. So we're going to, you know, see how your child does and we will check in with you as often as you need us to check in with you. Mm -hmm. uh, so before we go, um, I would love if you guys would tell us how parents, educators can reach you at the uh, Reading and Language Learning Center and um, what's the best approach for reaching out to you? What should they, sure. what information should they have in hand when they do so? Mm -hmm. Um, they can definitely find our website, which is readingllcenter.com. And on there, they can even fill out a request for a chat with us to book a chat. Um, there's lots of, we have lots of parent resources under the tab of uh, resources that they can look through. And, um, you know, if they're coming because they're concerned their child is not talking yet, there's a link for that. Um, there's all different um, activities in there, too, that parents can do with their kids at home. We update our Facebook group very regularly, and that is um, facebook.com, and that's Reading LL Center is how to find that, as well as the Instagram um, Reading LL Center can be found on there. And um, Carla and I also host almost monthly a free parent seminar, and typically we pick a topic that we've been getting a lot of questions on, and then we present that, and it's open to all. It, the parents don't have to be clients of ours. It's just open to the community. And that information also gets posted on our website. And where are your physical offices? So we have two offices in Virginia. One is in Vienna, Virginia, and the other is in Chantilly. And then we also have a location um, in D.C., Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. and that is on Capitol Hill. Okay, great. So thank you. Our guests today were Carla Askew and Susan Denker, founders of the Reading and Language Learning Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you have questions or would like to leave a comment about this episode, please visit our website at thezebraschool.com. There, you'll be able to access our library of episodes, find parenting resources, and browse our collection of product offerings and more.